0: so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat, and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today.
1: Hello, and welcome back in your Books in Hindu Studies. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkharan. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Hamsa Stainton, who is an assistant professor in the School of Religious Studies at McGill University, that's in uh, Montreal, Canada. Hello, Hamsa.
2: Hello, Raj. Thank you so much for uh, for having me on. It's a real pleasure to be here. Uh,
1: welcome to the program. We will be diving into Hamsa's uh, new uh, 2019 OUP publication entitled Poetry as Prayer in the Sanskrit Hymns of Kashmir. So. Um, you you already sort of start doing this in the very title, but maybe you can locate us uh, to begin with um, historically and geographically in terms of what you're looking at in your book.
2: Uh, yeah, great, thanks, Raj. So the the book is really about the the stotra genre, and stotra for for those of you who, who may not know, stotras are um, commonly translated as as hymns of praise. Um, they're very versatile compositions. Um, they're they're found across South Asia and now the world. Um, across different traditions, not just uh, Hinduism, but also um, many other traditions, and the book focuses on the, the long history of this genre in the region of Kashmir, in in the far north of uh, the subcontinent. Um, so, from roughly from the, the eighth, ninth century up until the twentieth century, I look at some um, hymns and hymnals from the twentieth century.
1: So, um, in addition to your actual argument and your actual analysis of the hymns, it seems to me that um, That uh, a market contribution of this work is really just um, charting the stotra genre. Would you say?
2: Yeah. So that was one of the central concerns for me in the book is really thinking about the stotra genre. So it is about hymns from Kashmir, um, but I use those to think about uh, the stotra genre more broadly. And um, and I should also say one of the contributions it's published in the Religion and Translation series of the uh, American Academy of Religion, AAR. So. Um, one, one of the things that I'm trying to do is also provide uh, translations of a number of different works um, as, part of, uh, as part of this project.
1: So the translations are, are lucid and, and, and lovely. Uh, and we may uh, have the good fortune of reading uh, tidbits aloud uh, before the podcast is over. Um, so, so what, what do you find? What is, uh, how would you uh, delineate or define the Stotter genre?
2: Ah, so, the stolter genre itself. So, I mean, the first uh, let's see. After the introduction, the first chapter um, goes into kind of approaches the question of what is a stotra from three different angles. So, I, I spend some time on the question of definition because even though stotras are found across uh, you know across South Asia, the, the definition of a stotra there, there's no um, kind of definitive definition, and um, so I, I think about some different definitions that have been offered. Um, And offer uh, my own working definition, but then I also think about stotras in terms of classification and how they are, how the corpus of extant stotras has been interpreted and organized, uh, because that tells us something about the stotra genre. And then I also think about uh, the question of what is a stotra from the perspective of history. So thinking about, you know, what what are the kind of some of the key historical moments that we can identify as being important for this genre, some key innovations, definitive authors, and so on. If in terms of the actual, in terms of definition, um, I focus in in the kind of the working definition I offer on you know the the fact that stoltas are about praise, right, which is connected to the root stu, right, to praise, to eulogize, to to um, to, to sing about um, these. The praise is at the core of the genre, and one of the things that is important about thinking about praise is that I, I talk about it in terms of being um vectorial that there's a, a kind of a directionality and it may not be a direct address of a deity or some other type of divinity but it's it's it might be indirect but there's this sense of using language you know uh, praise language in this kind of directional um directional way I mean there's, there's other features of the definition that I that I highlight in the book from the kind of the, the sense of efficacy the way that it's a an efficacious use of language for you know, religious or, or material um, benefits. Um, you know, stotras are often, they're often personal, but but not necessarily so. They're often devotional, but they don't have to be. Um, many of them, you know, most of them are short, but some of them are, are quite long. And um, some stotras are, uh, well, the vast majority of stotras are uh, in, in verse, um, but there are some uh, there are some that are not. So it's it's a very flexible genre. There, there are many different things that have, in different contexts, been identified or grouped with with stotras. And that's one of the things that I query in that in that chapter is thinking about well, you know, there's this kind of common understanding of what a stotra is, but when we look at it a little bit more closely, um, it's 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 a little bit more complicated. And so how can we approach that question from different angles?
1: So in your view, when would you say um, uh, stotras arise?
2: Ah, see, so one of the, this is an excellent question. And um, one of the things that I do in that chapter is think about the relationship between what we call stotras and certain other bodies or certain other types of literature. And so one of the questions that I explore is, you know, are Vedic hymns stotras? And I'm not an expert on on Vedic literature, um, but I do, you know, think through some of the arguments. There there are arguments being made that Classical Sanskrit stotras are a continuation, a kind of direct uh, evolution of Vedic hymns. And there are other arguments that there's a distinctive break between what we might call, you know, kind of classical stotras and, and Vedic hymns. And so there, there are arguments for um, each of those uh, positions, and I kind of cover those uh, in, in that chapter. So it, it depends on, on how persuaded you are by those different arguments, I suppose. Are you persuaded either way, do you think? Um, no, I think, I think that in different contexts, there are reasons to emphasize that continuity in the same way that there are other contexts when I think we can talk about real differences. So, for example, there are different types of literary concerns and strategies being employed in Stotras, uh that we find in the first millennium CE onward that we don't find in, um, in earlier Vedic hymns. On the other hand, there are many, many things that are uh, that there's a, a tremendous amount of overlap. So, um, I mean, overall, I would say I think there's there's much more continuity, but that's one. Um, but but there are reasons to also talk about some things that are new in early Jain and Buddhist and and then what we call Hindu uh, stotras.
1: Yeah, it certainly does seem to be the case that stotras uh, are both the same as and different from the kinds of eulogy we find in Vedic hymns and. Uh, it's probably difficult to, um, for me, just by reading them to put my finger on it, but for someone like yourself who's been studying them and their mechanics more closely, it's comforting to know that you see them as both the same and different. <laughs> um, uh, so what, 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 uh, in terms of the hymns that you're looking at, what interesting trends are you tracking or what are you making sense of? What's different about that time and space and what's happening in this the genre?
2: Thanks. So, one of the things, you know, there have been studies of stotras from Kashmir before, and th- these have usually been limited to um, certain well known, you know, or, or famous hymns, um, oftentimes in a very limited time frame. One of the things that I do in this book is by thinking about stotras in Kashmir over a long history, I think we have a certain insights into the genre and to what individual authors are doing in Kashmir based on that kind of big picture perspective. So one of the so after I kind of spent some time on the stotra genre itself, which I return to of course throughout the book, um, the next chapter in the book is really about the history of, of hymns in, in Kashmir. And I focus on literary hymns that are um, engaging larger conversations about literature and aesthetics and theology and so on that have, you know, where we can place them in time and, and space with uh, more definitively. And so, looking at these kind of literary hymns in Kashmir from the eighth or ninth century up to the the present, um, there there are a number of trends that I identify and um, kind of draw out of that um, survey. So, you know, for example, one of them is that many of these hymns are deeply invested in complex theological questions, and in particular, we have a lot of non-dualist authors who seem to have been drawn to the stotra form as a kind of as a flexible way to Present, explore, articulate, model uh, certain types of theological positions. Um, so that's one one kind of trend. Another is that we have many of these stotras over the course of you know, twelve hundred years exhibit concern with uh, certain types of audiences. Um, in particular, for example, I track how many stotra authors are concerned with the aesthetic appreciation of their audience and how their audiences understand the kind of the poetic and literary qualities of these hymns. Um, and then lastly, if I, I don't want to go on too long, but the, the one last kind of trend that I kind of draw upon or, or highlight in my discussion of the long history is the way that the trajectory of the stotra genre in Kashmir has a very different look than the trajectory of other genres. Right? So there are, you know, there has been some really great scholarship on the history of, you know, tantric, uh, tantric exegesis, and and ritual theory, and philosophy, and and other types of compositions in Kashmir. And when we look at the stotra genre, we can see that it has, um, it, it has its own life. It while there were other genres that maybe were no longer being composed or didn't have as much vitality, that the kind of the Sanskrit hymn was one that um, in, in continued to flourish as a source of experimentation and insight and uh, development for for centuries. So that's something we can only see when we look at the the long history.
1: Well, it seems to me certainly the case that your book puts that trajectory on the map in terms of Hindu study scholarship. Um, um, is still different from Kapya, would you say?
2: So this is one of the central questions that I, I uh, approach in um, in one of the chapters of the book. I talk about the chapters Stoltra as kavya, and it's really asking you know what is the relationship between Stoltra and kavya, and what kind of evidence do we have for that, both um, in the context of kavyas themselves and in uh, literary theory and so on. And what I I mean because one thing, as you know well, you know oftentimes what we have is we have stotras embedded in other texts, right? We have stotras that are within within mahakavyas or within puranas and so on so on, on one hand yes clearly we have stotras that are in kavyas in mahakavyas and then we have some stotras that are so have their their own literary lives as kind of compelling uh, well respected works of of literature that circulate on the other hand when we have discussions of kavya that stotras really don't have the same of standing, they don't have the same place. They're not clearly defined and organized in discussions of you know what are the different genres of kavya, for example. And so you know in the book I chart um, how how discussions of kavya and stotra have often ended up placing kavya in in a kind of marginal or kind of gray area, basically. Um, there's this kind of fuzzy position that Stotras does occupy. In Kashmir, what I argue is that we have authors who are deliberately trying to elevate the status of stotras as kavya. Who are trying to unequivocally say, you know, stotras are kavya, and in fact, you know, my stotras here are our kavya, and and um, make kind of implicit arguments about that throughout their works. Um, so I, I think that in various contexts, stotras that because they're in this marginal gray area, sometimes they are or are not considered kavya. Um, but that there are individual works that perhaps have been, and then there are certain authors who are aware of that ambiguity. Let's say, and are trying to, um, as I say, you know, kind of elevate the status of Stothers to this uh, status of Kavya.
1: Yeah. So uh, you you uh, begin your your last response with um, something along the lines as as I would know or be familiar with, and I think you're probably referring to the fact that within the Devi Mahatmya we have these. Sutras that may well have been standalone hymns to the goddess Um, and certainly they're of a very different texture it seems to me i sort of have in the back of my brain to do a close study of just the four sotras and see what we can see uh compared to the rest of the text and so uh, i can sort of resonate with with what you're with what you're uh, alluding to um what would you say is the main argument of the book what is the main thing you really wish to convey
2: So I was afraid you were going to ask that. I knew you were going to ask that. And I'm also, uh, because um, I wouldn't actually say that I have this this kind of single driving argument to the book. Rather, um, I guess I would say that the the title of the book suggests the main main point that I want to get across, which is that when the stotras are... You know they're this ubiquitous, important genre that is often understudied, although that is starting to change. There's some really great work being done um, by some some of my colleagues um, now on on, on stotras in different uh, different regions and traditions. But that so one of the things I'm trying to argue in the book is that we should take these texts seriously as both uh, kind of religious expression and uh, poetic expressions. Um, I, I begin the book really thinking about the basic dynamic of you know the 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 close relationship between poetic and religious expression in in South Asia. I mean, throughout the world, of course, but in South Asia, this is a very strong um, relationship. And so thinking about, you know, poetry as prayer, prayer as poetry, and what is the power of, uh, the, the power of having um, prayer expressed as poetry. And so um, I, I, some of the arguments in the book are very much about understanding the stotra genre and really understanding the full kind of power, potential, the full uh, flexibility of this genre, and hence to help explain its its appeal and um, versatility over the, the centuries. And then I'm also looking at, in the case of Kashmir, and thinking about, you know, what has this genre been able to do? You know, why have authors turned again and again and again to this genre over the centuries in Kashmir? Um and and so how that you know it it connects closely to discussions about caveat, right about literature but also questions about aesthetics right thinking about you know we, we maybe we'll talk in a little bit about rasa for example that there are all and, and then certainly theological questions so there there are all these things that are touched on by stotras and so thinking how do we how does this um, how does the unique configuration of religious and poetic expression that we find in this stotra form um, what can that tell us about uh, well, the, the genre overall, of course, we can learn things, but then also specifically about the history of religion and literature in um, in Kashmir.
1: Uh, fascinating. So, you know, I guess your title says it all. Poetry is clear. Would you would you regard these stilted as the ones that you study? In any case, as um, it's safe to say, you would regard them as both um, aesthetic and religious expressions. Yes.
2: Yes, certainly. Um, in in different ways, of course. I mean, there are you know we're talking about lots of different types of texts, um, but I and I think you know I, I think that prayer. You know, I have a chapter in the book that is about the category of prayer and specifically about poetry as prayer. That's really thinking through uh, you know what are the I mean there are limitations of course, but there's also value in thinking about um, poetic you know thinking about these texts as types of prayers. So for example. You know, prayer as a category is very flexible. It doesn't mean one thing. It's kind of an umbrella term for all of these different ways of, you know, using language to engage with, you know, usually a deity, right? Some kind of some form of, of divinity, some kind of religious um, addressee. And so, you know, the stotra too is this kind of flexible umbrella term that encompasses everything from, um, you know, of course, praise and, and petition. Um, but also kind of uh, meditative contemplation, expressions of, of gratitude, or um, statements of auspiciousness and blessings. There's lots of different functions ac- accomplished by the language of stotras as prayer.
1: And um, maybe we'll dive into some of some of the material. There's there's a lot of rich material to I think translate beautifully. Um, have to begin? Was there a particular stotra uh, that, that you know you, you quite enjoyed or resonated with or you think might be fruitful to to dive into?
2: Ah, well i A lot of the book uses a lot of the you know a couple of chapters of the book focus on a 14 sec, uh, 14th century text called "The Stuti Kusum Anjali" by Jagadharvata. and um, Jagadhara was so he lived in Kashmir. And we don't have we don't really we have one other kind of grammatical text by him. We don't really have much by him. Um but it's a it's a very it's a very large uh it, it's a major literary work. It's very creative, it's very ambitious, and it has um it, it hasn't been studied very much at all. I mean it's been referred to a few times, a few verses have been translated. Um and so I use because it's a basically it's a collection of 38 different stotras. Um, in this kind of cohesive large text, I, and it and it reflects quite a bit on the stotra genre, and it also was composed probably in the in the 14th century, at a time when there weren't a lot of other compositions in. Uh, we don't have a lot of other texts produced from that time in Kashmir. I, I really I use that as a focus for several chapters because I found it a very kind of powerful way to raise a number of themes and also make a, um, certain historical arguments. So. You know, as you may know, you know, the, a lot of the focus on, on religion in Kashmir has has been on the, you know, the kind of heyday uh, um, of certain kind of tantric theological ritual traditions from the, you know, let's say from the ninth to the 12th century. And there are good reasons for that. I'm not saying there aren't good reasons for that. Uh, but one of the things I was trying to do in the book is expand uh, expand the window of time in which we look at, at religion in Kashmir and, and um, Sanskrit literature. So I focus quite a bit on that 14th century text because of of some of those reasons. Um, So that's one, you know, that's one place to start. I, I, because of that importance, I quote, you know, I translate verses from that, um, that text in the introduction and conclusion as a way of kind of bookending the the book, Um, but there's also, you know, this famous hymns, you know, of Abhinavagupta and Upaladeva, some of these um great uh, Kashmiri authors who are, who are more well known um certainly, and um, I know do you have somewhere you're are you thinking of something in particular Raj? Or would you like to turn to anything? There,
1: no, I think I think you know i'm I mean of, I can suggest a verse if that's what you're there's a there's a there's lots but I think at the beginning of chapter five, you have a beautiful translation of of a, of a section from uh, the 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 poem you have in mind. If I recall, yeah, beginning of chapter five. Do I read that
2: first? Sure. This flower offering of praise, Stuti Kusumanjali, has been prepared here at the lotus feet of the Lord adorned by the crescent moon by this servant who collected it from the vine of fresh, beautiful praise poetry watered by uninterrupted devotion. May it make the hearts of the virtuous full of longing with its fragrance.
1: Yeah, it's gorgeous. So you have this—you uh, have this really well-researched, interesting um, argument or set of ideas throughout the book, and then it's sort of like you have these sprinklings of <laughs> of luscious uh, <laughs> translations of the primary source, and it's—it's it's, um... so one of the interviews I did on this podcast, which is probably very different from most of them, was uh, Archana Venutations' translation, mm. uh, "Endless Song," and it was just—it was luscious it was uh mind-bending rewatches well Um,
2: she she set the standard for the rest i I believe her book was the first in that um in this religion and translation series so she really set the gold standard for the rest of us
1: Um, oh wow it's from the same series as well look at that um so i'm trying to draw parallels without leaving you too much in my answer but uh, how let's put it this way would you say that um Stotras are where people look for theological arguments or theological material, the way you research in your book.
2: So I, um, one of the, in in the past, I think people have often thought of stotras as where, uh, that an author might have their philosophical, theological arguments somewhere else, and then they uh, kind of express themselves in these kind of spontaneous, ecstatic, you know, effortless Way in these in these hymns, and this is kind of their mystical experience put into language. And um, I mean, I, I'm not certainly, I, I don't know the exact uh, way that certain hymns were composed, and so on. But one of the things that I'm trying to do is I'm trying to push back a little bit on that way of thinking about stotras and say that you know that stotras like prayer aren't necessarily these. Um, kind of spontaneous cry from the heart that they can also be, for example, deeply sophisticated and elaborate and and um, requiring deep thought and contemplation and so on, right so that there are studies of prayer in other traditions that have focused on the importance of kind of contemplative prayer and um, different types of different types of prayer and so I think this the the study of prayer in Hindu contexts has often um, Had been then there's been a narrow way that prayer has been interpreted, and specifically in terms of this kind of mystical ecstatic expression, um, which I think is certainly part of it, but is part of a much larger, kind of more expansive understanding of what prayer is and and ways that we encounter it. So to answer your question about stotras and and theology, I, I think that we we shouldn't we can find a lot of thinking and theological thought and reflection in stotras. And I try to think about some different ways we might understand these hymns. So for example, there have been some, there's been some great, uh, I think there's been some great developments in the study of stotras and thinking about stotras pedagogically, right? As texts that are teaching audiences certain things, right? So Agal Bronner's um, done some very important kind of pioneering work on this, but David Buckton and, and other people have kind of um, uh, approached stotras in this way. So I think about some of these stotras as you know, pedagogical, as models, right? not just expressing devotion, for example, but as modeling how certain audiences might uh, express their own devotion, and specifically in the case of, let's say, Utpaladeva, how they might express that devotion in a non-dualistic way, right? Because bhakti, of course, devotion implies this kind of uh, two-ness. So how do you, it's a certain theological problem. Um, so that's one of the things that, you know, in the chapter, one of the chapters is on poetry as theology and is thinking about the poetic possibility, excuse me, the, the theological work that can be done by poetry. Um, and so whether it's different types of figures of figures of speech, different type of poetic strategies. I um, mean, that's one thing that I'm looking at there.
1: Yes, I, I mean, I find that fascinating. Uh, it seems to me that, that those in general can be quite unassuming uh, in in what they can yield in terms of the philosophy and theology and, and aesthetic material that they sort of encode um sometimes in a very unassuming way um, i've learned a lot about the day Mahatma's vision of um, of the of the great goddess for example just by looking at probably the most ornate stotra in the text in chapter four i believe and so it's 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 really fascinating to, to look at them as separate entities and what they're accomplishing and they tend to be rich right there's lots in there, would you say?
2: Absolutely. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I will say, Raj, I'm sorry that I did not get, I did not read that wonderful article you wrote about the hymns in the Devi mahatmya until after the book had, I'd already, the book was way out of my hands. So, but that, that is an excellent article. So, um,
0: <laughs>
1: no
2: worries at all. Yeah, um, no, it's great. Um, and I will say since, you know, we brought up that verse at the beginning of chapter five, in the, in the chapter on, on prayer, so I'm, one of the things I'm trying to do is think through the category of prayer and thinking through the kind of flexibility of prayer as a category and the flexibility of stotra and how it encompasses everything, you know, from petitionary praise to, you know, blessings and, and all, all these complex forms of language use. Um, I also look to the, the Sanskrit texts themselves for some ways that they're understanding the way language is working. So one of the one of my favorite sections is is there's a part of that chapter about poetry as prasada, right? As Prasad or Prasada. The idea of um, we, we find this idea kind of hinted at in some of Jagadhada's verses. And so I, I thought it was a very kind of provocative idea to think through language or you know, or poetry as something that is offered to a deity and is supposed to be as you know, as, as pure and as beautiful and as you know as high quality with as much sincere emotion as possible, right? So it's offered. but then it's then it's returned back to the the, the one who makes the offering, right as Prasad. and it's kind of shared in a community of devotees and a community of listeners and and reciters. and so that there's this kind of circulation of that poetry that the circulation of that poetry is mirroring the kind of circulation of. Material goods, right, like you know, sweets and flowers and so on, as this kind of substantiation of a devotional community. And so thinking about the way that poetry language can work uh, analogously to other types of offerings to a deity.
0: Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off.
1: What a beautiful idea! Actually, that uh, that language uh, should be ornate or well prepared as a as a as a as a dish or a platter of, of offerings I and mean, first offered um, to the object of veneration and then then secondarily enjoyed or distributed among among the congregation. That, that's a beautiful idea. Um, and you mentioned that it's one of your favorite parts of the book. So tell us, um, are there other parts of the book that you quite enjoy? Ah,
2: (laughs) well, um, I, you know, I've, i found as a, as, as an author, it's it's always a unique experience to kind of go back to one's own work and to, you know, because there are certain days when I turn back to it and I I can't bear to read anything. And then there are certain days when I say, oh, that was actually a good point. So I've had a, you know, I have various, um, my relationship to my own work sometimes goes up and down, um. I think, I, I, at the end of the day, what I what I take away from my own book, one of the things is that the these texts themselves are so rich, um, and that uh, I'm grateful that at the end of the day, I'm I'm not tired of reading uh, these texts themselves because they are they're so interesting and so rich, and there's so much going on. So, um, any any time you know, I like getting to re kind of revisit uh, revisit these uh, these texts. Um, there are some other parts of the book that I'd be happy to talk about if you want to. Um, I could bring those up, or if you have other questions, Absolutely. you
1: want to go. No, no, no. This is um, this. Uh, I mean, for those of you who've listened to this, you've mentioned this before. These interviews are very unscripted. Uh, I sort of value the the live exchange that we can have, uh, an experience together, and also obviously covering basic um, data that uh, anyone interested in the book from a scholarly perspective or or, or, or as part of the readership might be interested in like what, where, when, how, your methodology, your sources. And so once we cover covered the basics, I'm really happy to have you talk about the parts of the book that you, you feel would be most relevant to this podcast.
2: Well, great. So there's a couple, um, some of the kind of the later chapters of the book, I think there's some things that are kind of interesting for the study of Hinduism, but also, uh, also a little bit more, more broadly as well. So we talked a little bit about stotras and, and kavya and thinking about kind of classical literature and one of the things that I do in that chapter is I, is I I, probe some of the categories that often get short shrift in the study of kind of Sanskrit literature and, and Sanskrit and, and religious studies. So, for example, in particular, I'm thinking of the category of Chitra Kavya, right? Chitra meaning, here meaning kind of, uh, kind of fancy or flashy, you know, brilliant um, poetry or, or, or literature. And so thinking about, so I look at the way that some stotras are, experimenting with this kind of sophisticated, complex, um, elaborate, uh, you know, really virtuosic type of Sanskrit poetry. Um, And so we can see the way that these, you know, the the authors of these hymns are invested in uh, questions of literary form and um, sophistication. And one of the arguments that I make about that, and this is something, you know, I mean, Sheldon Pollock was one of my, um, my my you know great mentors continues to be a a mentor and and um and one of the one of the things that I do in the book is I engage this idea of this you know the so-called the debate around the so-called death of Sanskrit, um which I think is one of the most misunderstood uh, one of the most misunderstood arguments out there. So I I'm you know kind of engaging with that idea and one of the things that I try to show is the way that um the Stotra genre, as I mentioned earlier, the trajectory shows a, a lot of creativity and experimentation and vitality at a time when other genres seem to have not been as important, or it would seem to have been less uh, appealing, or they weren't being composed, or or we just don't have them. Um, and so that we can see, in the, that the stotra became, because the stotra was so flexible as a form, it allowed for authors to engage with lots of other things at the same time as they were composing stotras. So they were composing kavya and stotra. They were exploring certain philosophical um, ideas, but being presenting them as stotra, that there's, you know, caveats written as stotras and so on. Um, And so we can, I'm really trying to unpack some of the historical um, vitality of the stotra genre in relation to these debates about the vitality of of Sanskrit literary production in Kashmir.
1: I think to underscore um, what your work is hoping to accomplish, maybe unpack a little bit. For our listeners who may not be familiar, with this argument about the "quote unquote" death of Sanskrit
2: amounts to? So, I mean, this will be a little bit of a simplification, but um, the idea, my understanding of the uh, idea about the death of Sanskrit, which is a very, obvi- admittedly, a very kind of bold and, and kind of dramatic way to put it, is that there are there are certain conditions under which. Uh, literary production in sanskrit has flourished and then there are conditions under which that um, flourishing has faded out and, and and disappeared right we have we have moments we have time periods where their conditions are right for extremely elaborate and uh i mean just impressive production in sanskrit across genres and then we have times when that no longer ceases to be the case um, i i mean just to, the, the the really simplified version is that I think there's a mistaken interpretation of that phrase to mean that is Sanskrit a dead language, for example, which is not what that argument, as I understand it, is making at all. It's that there are and in fact, in in that famous article the, on the death of Sanskrit, um Sheldon Pollock, you know, he's talking about multiple different contexts in which we have that transition, right? Of thriving Sanskrit literary production, and then at some point that flourishing of production um you know, disintegrates. And so what is it that leads to that disintegration? And in fact, it may be different. It's different in different contexts, right? What it was in Kashmir, there may have been a different reason for that, for those heights of Sanskrit literary production to no longer be reached. Um, It may be different there than it was in, you know, the Vijayanagara or in the Eve of Modernity in Bengal and so on. Um, So I, I, in my mind, it's, I'm not actually rejecting the central arguments of that thesis. Um, I mean, We can talk about specific language or emphasis and so on, but I'm pointing out that, I, so what I call it is, uh, in the case of Kashmir, I describe it as a uh, a creative consolidation, that there were, as based on all the evidence we have, there were less works being produced across multiple different genres. But what we have when we look at the Stotra genre, for example, is that as the Stotra genre incorporated features and experimented with aspects of other genres, it was expanding and flourishing, and, and um, there was a lot of experimentation and newness and change going on in the Stotra genre. So I call it a kind of I call it a creative consolidation. That's one yeah one Good. way to think about that. Sounds sounds like an apt uh, phrase. Probably
1: should have covered this earlier in the interview, but just to be clear, your uh, for your book, you're looking. Your data is Sanskrit hymns,
2: yes. Yes, I, I forgot when I mentioned the title, but yes. Yeah, so I'm I'm really working with Sanskrit texts here. Yeah, um, these are the Sanskrit hymns, and you know, many of them, I should say, many of them continue, you know, remain important um, texts for you know communities uh, today. Many of them have been um, have have been. You know, Transplanted to different parts of the world and, and are important, and some of them are have been are very obscure and have not been known very well at all, or they're not known very well now um, they were in in the, in the past. So a range of sources, and I should also say, let me if I may add that some of them have been published multiple times. Um, I and I do talk about some of the most famous hymns, for example, the Shiva the collection of hymns of um, Utpala poetry, but other you know, there's some poems that. I that have been published in editions but never translated or studied, like the Stuti Sumanjali, And there are other texts like the Krama hymns of uh, a figure named Naga that are unpublished. And so I worked with manuscripts and, um, and edited and translated from the manuscripts.
1: So would you say all or most of these uh, hymns um, are to Shiva?
2: So most of the hymns that I'm looking at in the book are Shiva, Yes. And um, not exclusively. So for example, one of the most prominent examples would be the, uh, the Sama Panchashika. It's a, a text devoted to the sun, the sun god. Um, also, I'm, I'm assuming of interest to you, Raj. And then, and then also the, there are hymns to the goddess in, um, in certain, you know, in the Haravijaya Vijaya of Ratnakara. And there are certain larger texts that have hymns within them, and so I talk about some of those. Um, but by and large, the hymns I'm talking about are hymns to Shiva. Yes.
1: Yeah, there's some interest in in, in sun worship for sure. Um, I talk about it a little bit uh, in um, The Goddess and the Sun. Um, that's This hymn that you look at is not one that I cover in the book, so it's interesting. I'll have to look it up. And of course, there are all these traditions, um, probably as early as your period, where uh, Shiva and the sun are equated. Have you encountered that in your
2: work? So the the reason so that we have the, the Samapanchashika is commented upon by Kshemaraja in the 11th century in Kashmir. And Kshemaraja was a disciple, the most you know, the most prolific and famous disciple of the the great polymath Abhinavagupta, right, circa 1000 CE. And Kshemaraja wrote a commentary on the Samapanchashika in which he interprets all of the sauda, you know, the, the all the references related to the sun god and he interprets them in terms of a kind of non-dualistic shaiva uh position and so it's it's a it's it's you know this great example of a, a layering of a shaiva interpretation onto the the hymn to the sun um whether or not there are shaiva elements uh, there are no it doesn't seem to be that there are obvious shaiva elements in the hymn itself beyond certain kind of general references let's say um, so in the hymn itself, there, there doesn't seem to be a kind of direct linkage, but you know overlay on top of it made it a kind of classic example of that.
1: Interesting stuff. Was, uh, while you were writing this book or looking at hymns, was there anything that particularly sort of surprised you with for a loop or sort of really changed your trajectory?
2: One of the things that I was very intrigued by... Early on, and then I pursued, and that um, bore fruit in the form of um, I think it's the seventh chapter on um, was I I kept encountering the language, the way that aesthetic terminology was being used in these hymns, and this is true in other contexts in Kashmiri Sanskrit literature. But in the hymns, there were um, a number of kind of references where authors seem to be very invested in the categories of Sanskrit aesthetics, and I followed this particularly by tracing the way that these stotra authors were using the language of rasa and particularly the language of bhakti and bhakti rasa. So for those of, you know, I mean, I'm sure most of um, your audience is, is, is aware of these terms, right? rasa meaning kind of taste, flavor or juice. Um, and it, in, a, in an aesthetic context, right, it refers to this kind of aestheticized emotion, right? It's different than the emotion we experience on an everyday uh, in everyday life. It's this kind of aestheticized version of this emotion that has these different kind of conditions. And so there's a debate. Um, may, should I should I go on on this? Should I, can I explain this idea about Bhakti Rasa, Raj? Is that all right? Please. please. Great. This, so, is, this, is, this is about your work. By all means. So, so Bhakti Rasa, I mean, this was one of the things that I just found very fascinating was the way that there were authors who would use the term Bhakti Rasa in their poetry. Now, you know, if you're a good poet, you don't you know there's this general sense of where you're not you know you're not supposed to use you're not supposed to say here is the sentiment of love for example right you you show you don't tell um but there were there were ways that these poets were referencing the idea of of rasa and bhakti in relation to one another that were intriguing and it was intriguing because there had been a debate in Kashmir about whether or not bhakti devotion is one of the rasas because there's a set list of rasas and so there were you know, Bhakti was one of the candidates to be an additional rasa, and so there were arguments. Specifically, for, you know, Abhinavagupta identifies, you know, saying, "No, no, no, Bhakti is not its own independent rasa. It is, you know, Bhakti is, um, it's kind of a subcategory, and we can attach it to this other, this other rasa." So there there were debates about Bhakti rasa, and what I argue, what I found, and what I argue is that in some cases we have poets who seem to be Rejecting or pushing back against the position of theorists, uh, I, there's a certain discord between the way that poets seem to be talking about theory, poetic theory, and the way that the theorists were, and um and so I chart Bhakti Rasa in particular and the way that you know we may it may we may have the earliest reference to Bhakti Rasa um, as a as as a term um, in in one of these in the Stabha um, this this text from uh the ninth nice. tenth century Kashmir. And so I chart the, many people know about Bhakti Rasa because of later Vaishnava iterations that became so um, you know well developed and, and justifiably famous. Um, and one of the things that I argue is that we have we have earlier ideas about bhaktirasa oftentimes just inchoate in some of these hymns themselves. They don't they never kind of blossom into a full-fledged theory that everyone has subscribed to. But we have different views on bhakti and rasa in some of these um, different stotra authors in Kashmir. So that was one of the kind of fun, um, you know, not mysteries, but kind of fun threads to to follow across uh, multiple authors over several hundred years.
1: Well, I think fun thread is a good way of describing that. That is chapter seven, Devotion of Rasa. And and that's um that's one of the features about this book. You know, you say you sort of have you know you 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 were we of me asking about your major contribution and major argument, and I think there is uh, an argument for sure in the book, but it definitely fleshes out. It, there's so much um, breadth. Like there's there's all these different threads. So maybe and perhaps we should have done this earlier, but in either case. Maybe you can just walk the listener through the overall structure of the book so and get a sense of 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 the of the threads that are in your argument and how they fit together
2: great certainly so i've um I've tried to i've been trying to subtly do that in the way that I answer certain questions here already, so some of this will be um repetitive you know, we've, we, I'm but, sure um, we've, we've
1: touched on them yeah, no indeed we've but but as a as
2: a as a form of review here. So, I mean, in the introduction, I uh, what I do in the introduction, in addition to establishing these kind of basic relationships, is I really introduce six key terms, right? And these are the terms, you know, stotra, and then poetry, but specifically as kavya, poetics or aesthetics in terms of um, alankara shastra, and then the terms prayer, bhakti, and then the region of Kashmir. And so, you know, the introduction kind of r- uh, introduces those, you know, I think I call them threads that weave throughout the book. Those are, um, they recur in different chapters. And so those are, I return to those uh, six terms throughout the book. And then the first chapter, Stotra literature, an overview, is about this, you know, what is a Stotra? And it approaches that from the perspective of definition, um, uh, classification, and, and history. And then chapter three is literary hymns from Kashmir. And this is this kind of big overview history of hymns in in Kashmir and specifically these kind of literary sophisticated hymns in chapter 4 which is a very long chapter i look at uh, many of the most famous and and kind of influential hymns from Kashmir in the uh, the chapter is called poetry as theology and so i'm thinking about the the way that theological work is being done in these hymns thinking about just, you know what's distinctive about these hymns how they're using poetry for uh for these kind of theological ends. Chapter five is poetry as prayer. We've already talked uh, a bit about that. Chapter six is called Stotra as Kavya. And it's again, it's about the relationship between these hymns and Kavya literature more broadly. And then I look at uh, kind of a case study of the Stuttikusumanjali of Jagadarapakta as a a kind of example of uh, Stotra as Kavya. And so thinking about um, that text in particular. Chapter seven is devotion as rasa. So this is this is what we've been talking about in terms of bhakti. So thinking about kind of aestheticized uh, devotion as a aesthetic category and how um, stotra authors are kind of reflecting the discourse of aesthetics or actually making certain types of interventions or um, implicitly arguing for certain types of positions in relation to aesthetics um, and using rasa as a, kind of the main example for that. And then the the last kind of body chapter is the one that we haven't really talked about at all yet. Um, I call it Stotra as Tradition. And this chapter is about the idea of tradition, not as something static or necessarily or, or simply as something invented, but thinking about tradition as a process. And I look at the way that Stotras have been particularly useful at certain points in time as a way of... Engaging with the past as part of adapting uh, in the in the present, and so I look at an example from the 17th century, um, and then I look in the 20th century. So I look at, in particular, I look at Swami Lakshmanju, who's a very um, well known proponent of Shaivism um, from Kashmir. He's uh, it was a Kashmiri, you know, a, a great guru and, and teacher, and he taught many uh, many scholars in the field as, as well as you know, a, kind of a community of devotees. And so I I think about the ways that Stotras were important in his own life, in his research, and also in his teaching, and in how how Stotras were how he were important in how he kind of formulated, um, articulated a certain uh, a certain tradition. Um, may I, should I continue? There's one more I think one more critical argument to that chapter. Um, Absolutely. So the the last part of this that I would highlight is that, is that I use that as an occasion to go into this question of. Um, you know, quote unquote, uh, Kashmir Shaivism, right? Because Kashmir, you know, we're ta- I'm talking quite a bit in this book about non-dualistic forms of Shaivism that flourished in Kashmir. And, um, you know, there's certainly value in talking about, you know, there's value in using a, a, a phrase like Kashmir Shaivism. It's convenient, it's, it's well known. Uh, but I also, I've, I summarize some of the consensus among scholars on the kind of the problems of using that term and some of the um, things that are misleading about it. And what I what I do in the chapter is I I think about how stotras have been in, important to the way that Kashmir Shaivism, you know, so-called Kashmir Shaivism, has been established and identified, articulated as a distinctive regional religious tradition. And um, in the argument that I make, it's a it's a little complicated, but to to simplify it, you know, that there's a history of you know, what, what Alexis Sanderson has made this argument very eloquently, right? A separation of um, kind of certain tantric ritual from the kind of Gnostic systems that go along with it. And so that there's this kind of uh, separation of kind of philosophical, theological, exegetical systems on one hand, and then um, technical ritual practice and treatises on the other hand. And part of that is because of the non-dual nature of that theology, right? There's sort of a turning away, perhaps, from the external elements of ritual. And what I, what I argue is that in the 20th century, in the late 19th and, the, and in the 20th century, that stotras allowed for that, stotras allowed for kind of bridging of that separation in a certain ways by bringing in the element of um, devotional practice to complement the very rich system of philosophy, theology, uh, kind of interpretive frameworks, right? I'm thinking of things like the the right? The the school, the system of of recognition and so on. So that stotras were this way of making a a very elaborate philosophical system also to be this um, uh, kind of devotional religious system as well. It's not the only thing doing that, but it was important as part of that process. so I can talk more about that if you want, but that's, that's, uh, I really try to tackle a little bit of that, that question about Kashmir Shaivism at the end.
1: Well, that, that, um, that definitely resonates. Uh, the, the very nature of stotra, that, that etymologically probably should be sung or intoned aloud. Would you agree with that? That, that stotras um, were meant to be intoned aloud?
2: So I um, I would say I, I would avoid for myself the language of should I don't know whether, whether they should or shouldn't and um, there are various ways that they can be um, in, engaged but they clearly often have been or were designed to be I mean I think that the the fact that they can and have been sung is a central part of the genre yes and I should have mentioned that earlier thank you Roger sure
1: no so so yes I understand your um, I I understand what you're saying so. Historically or etymologically, there is an association with stotra and um, intoned sound, and that in itself uh, serves as a bridge um, between or away from simply simple ideation. So, so as soon as you are intoning it aloud, it's an embodied experience. Yes. Yes. So it seems to be. The, the 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 very genre itself seems to be amenable to the kind of bridging that you're arguing for at the end of your book.
2: Indeed, exactly.
1: Yeah. Great. So, um, anything else that you you hope to touch on um, in the podcast?
2: So, let's see. When you know, I one of the things if I'm thinking about why this book might be interesting to someone, I mean. Uh, my hope is that this is deeply interesting to someone who is invested in the stotra genre already or interested in Sanskrit literature, Sanskrit literary theory, interested in the region of Kashmir or in so-called you know Kashmir shaivism or non dual theological traditions, and so on. There are also a number of other things that I think it connects to, so it's not one of the major things that I focus on, but it's something that I return to at parts of the book as the relationship for between sanskrit hymns and vernacular bhakti poetry right bhakti poetry in in, in other other languages and um so i think you know I'm, my my hope would be that those who are interested in uh, kind of the history of bhakti across languages uh, might be interested in in this work um, one of the things that i've argued in parts of this book and and elsewhere is that sanskrit hymns sanskrit stotras are are these are the closest analogs to the kind of poetry that gets looked at as this bhakti poetry, right? Vernacular poetry. Um, when people talk about Sanskrit and bhakti, they usually turn in my experience, at least they turn to texts like the Bhagavad Gita or the Bhagavad Purana. Now there are good reasons to do that, but if we, if we're thinking about the way that communities have experienced, um, Sanskrit and, and, uh, expressed or experienced Sanskrit, um, devotion in Sanskrit, that I think, you know, these hints, stotras are, are really a much uh, closer analog. You know, they're found everywhere. They are memorized. They are recited. They're sung, as we were just talking about. So I'm trying to make some links between the study of Sanskrit stotras and the study of um, bhakti poetry in, in other in other languages. Um I mean, there's a number of you know, there's a number of other historical kind of small individual arguments, but um, those are some of the main things I really wanted to touch on in the book. Yeah.
1: Well, it's clearly a fascinating contribution to um, a number of subfields within Hindu studies. Um, certainly, anyone interested, as you say, in um, Kashmir, that time period, or or bhakti, or or poetry, or Sanskrit literature. Um, uh, really interesting groundbreaking work, I'd say. Um, so, uh, for those of you listening, um, feel free to check out Poetry as Prayer in the Sanskrit Hymns of Kashmir. Uh, it's a uh, 2019 OUP publication by Hamsa, perhaps now Panama Hamsa, having
2: produced this work,
1: <laughs> Hamsa Staten of um, McGill University. It was a pleasure having you on the program.
2: Raj, well, thank you so much. And, and can I just say thank you for all the work you're doing for the the, the new books in, uh, in Hindu studies. It's really a great service to the field and we're all very grateful. So thank you.
1: You are very welcome. It's my pleasure. Until next time, uh, keep reading, keep listening, keep thinking. Stay safe.